Hey there folks, Rob Hessler here with another episode of Art on the Air, my weekly Savannah morning news special. Appreciate you tuning in as always, and I have another great episode lined up for you this week. I spoke with Catherine Shriver from her Sulphur Studios space, and it was a really great conversation, but I have to admit that it's kind of couched in the middle of something a little bit disheartening, and that is that Catherine is moving away from Savannah and moving to Pittsburgh. So I wanted to talk to her about her reasons for moving, as well as talking about her practice, her art, her very relatable artwork that I think all of you are going to enjoy hearing her talk about. Wanted to mention, as always, you can catch past episodes of Art on the Air and my corresponding Art Off the Air column, as well as all of the writing that I do for the Savannah Morning News at savannahnow.com in the entertainment section and in the lifestyle section. I've got a really interesting piece coming up this weekend, this coming Sunday, about grants and the opportunities that they present for local Savannians, from individuals to nonprofit organizations to much larger organizations and uh, talk to some really interesting folks about all of that. So I think you're going to enjoy reading that. Again, that's the lifestyle section this coming Sunday. But let's get into this week's Art on the Air interview. Catherine Shriver talking from her studio. It is at her studio, and so there is some background noise from the things that are going on, but that's what you get when you do an interview from within the space, and I think it's kind of an interesting little add to the sound of it. So Catherine Shriver here. Enjoy. Rob Hesser here with Art on the Air Field Notes. I am speaking with Catherine Shriver. We are in her studio space over at Sulphur Studios. And Catherine, you would sort of fall into the broader media of, of fiber arts. But one of the things I think is really interesting about your work is that you're really tackling it in a very different way. So for those who are listening maybe on the radio right now and they don't have your work right in front of them, describe what you do in kind of terms of... An ordinary person could understand. Sure. Well, um, my main medium, as you say, is kind of in the realm of fiber arts, but I work the most with glass beads. And so if you think of the small glass beads that people often make jewelry with, that's kind of what I do. But um, frequently I'm weaving them into larger textiles. I have my loom behind me here where I've loom woven them into a kind of narrow textile. I have some That pieces. is an absurd, <laughs> absurd beadwork piece, by the way. People can't see it. It's probably about three feet long, about maybe eight, nine inches wide, and I mean, how many beads would you guess are involved? Oh, I, have in I, I can't answer those questions. I have no <laughs> it's idea like 10,000 beads or if something. It, if I was using the precision glass delicate beads that a lot of people use, I could maybe calculate, but um, all of these beads are really... Um, different qualities so they're all different sizes and stuff so it's hard to say but um if the size impresses you i have a piece behind you that's folded up there that i can take out and but that's a full robe that's like a full like person size wearable robe and i've done like a, there's a shirt on top of it and so i've done some wearable pieces that are full garments and um quite large so it's uh this is this is just part of something, you know. So. Oh, it's just <laughs> yeah, it's just. <laughs> just part of something. But I can't tell I can't tell you how many beats, but I can tell you about how many hours it takes. And so if you see right here, I know this measurement now from this loom. So it's about maybe, three inches. It's about three inches of a loom that is what? It's the size of my forearm is okay. what I need it to be, so I can like because you have to in the weaving process come behind the loom to pop the beads out. So the loom is kind of dictated by the size of my body. 
Um, but now I know an hour looks like about three, mm, two inches, <laughs> depending on how. Oh, that's actually pretty impressive. Yeah. The speed, yeah. actually, that you're getting that stuff down. Yeah, so. you don't do it beat by beat on the loom weaving. You do it row by row. And so the hardest thing sometimes is when you're using um, irregular beads. Like these are beads that I brought back from my study abroad in Paris in 2012, back when I was an undergrad. And I had to like, I found my first bulk bead store and I had to buy a suitcase <laughs> to bring all the beads I bought back. Um, but there are various qualities, so they're all different sizes. Um, so that's the hardest, just usually like lining them up and popping them through. But when you have these really nice beads, you can see these silver ones here. The threads that hold, like the warp of the loom, gets really regulated in the perfect size, so you can kind of just like slide your finger and pop them all in. So it, it depends on what, what you're doing and what you're using, but uh, yeah, it becomes sort of mechanical, but also very dancer-like. You pull the long threads and you stand up, sit down. It's really interesting the way your body moves with it. So that's one of the things I really like, and that's one of the things that I think connects my practice to fiber art specifically. Uh -huh, yeah. But um, I do have a, a lot of other sort of, I don't know, I don't want threads, um, threads to my work, backgrounds yeah. to my work. Um, so you can see on this piece here, which has got some beadwork and some jewelry chain and some found metal objects that were probably installed in a restaurant or at home on the side here. Um, I've been really interested in kind of maybe the domestic, but more from like the hardware perspective of the mm, domestic okay. and what we do to install. And so this um, there's a crystal door, or a fake crystal glass doorknob on the side there that's hanging just next to it. Very Savannah, and by the way. Very that's Savannah, but um, also very much. It's from my grandparents' home um, in near Buffalo, New York, okay. the state where I grew up, and my grandfather was a Sicilian carpenter. So he came to the States very young and um, worked in construction for a long time. And then my grandmother came from a poor, um, like Polish American family. And so they always wanted, as they kind of, you know, struggled to raise three children and really formed what they thought was the American dream. And the, the way they decorated their home was very important to them. Mm -hmm. And also this, this notion of being Italian American became very important to them. Um, but my grandmother, who did all the decorating, was not Sicilian, you know? So her decorating the home to furnish the sense of, like, to, to reflect the sense of, like, aspirational stability, um, but also reflect the sense of heritage that she only kind of experienced through my grandfather and right, family. Right, sure. So things like, you know, like, flocked wallpaper, it's very 70s also, but it's also very, like, ornate. And what we think, what I grew up thinking of is like very Italian or Sicilian. Uh -huh. um, so that's that's where a lot of um, the interest in these things come from. Was that as as a carpenter, as I was growing up, my grandfather was always kind of in and out of semi-retirement, and so what he would do a lot of time is he would come and he would make repairs in our homes that we wouldn't have been able to afford to like, pay somebody full price. And so it was always around like bathrooms being retiled. Right. And my grandmother too was always like coming over and like deciding we needed new curtains and making new curtains. And it was always <laughs> like, let's go to Joanne Fabrics, let's go to the Home Depot and find all these things. And then through that like constant practice of just like really DIY making from like commonly found mass produced materials, right. that was the stuff of the creative world around me, but also that creative world was the domestic space and um, very much not thought of as artistic. 
Yeah. But certainly was. And I mean, my well, anybody who owns a home, you know that there is an artistry to that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to take, you know, especially if you can only afford XYZ, like lower yeah. level stuff, you don't have a lot of choices. And everyone, I mean, growing up in a small rural home, every every one of your neighbors had the same three child choices as you did mm-hmm. for your bathroom. So to make something different, like my grandmother would go through and she would like hand paint details on things and she would like stencil her walls as was common in like the 90s but she would go and do like three level like three layers of stencils mixing a bunch of them and matching nice. up and then like in different metallics and stuff like that so they look like expensive wallpaper sometimes they were really like artisanally painted yeah nice yeah so. well and i know that this what you're speaking to too is uh is the recent series that you've been working on i yes. spent some time at home mm-hmm. and i do kind of think that that's interesting because you know, you're, you're kind of talking about that combination between, like, the handmade accent and then the store-made mm-hmm. product, mm-hmm. and you're, but you're kind of taking it from your grandmother doing it for the, and your grandfather, too, for a very functional, purposeful reason, like, literally need to have the bathroom fixed, or literally need new curtains. But also what they wanted that to reflect. So yeah, They really yeah. want, you know, coming from poverty, they really wanted to show, like, we aren't in poverty anymore and while um not by all standards right like i know yeah 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 it really know, depends but yeah, you know for them they had come quite a long way and they had they really that stability really meant a lot to them so it was an, uh, there's a lot of social instability and insecurity that was kind of tied into all of that as well why is that important to you now do you think i mean like other than the family history mm-hmm. aspect of it how do you think that that relates for you to sort of contemporary artistic practice? Mm-hmm. Because I do think that this is a common theme. I've thought, you know, I've seen other people kind of that going back to working with your hands, sort of showing that kind of thing. What is, why is it important to you, though? Yeah, well, there's two threads. I think um, the first being maybe more material and artistic and one being a little more, like, sociopolitical. And the first would be that I think it's just like this this practice of I called it I think in one artist statement like the like working class promiscuity of materials or something mm. where it just doesn't matter what something is actually for if it will serve the purpose the aesthetic purpose or the functional purpose you use it and that also like that that creates a lot of like really um a lot of ingenuity and a lot of creativity uh, in face of, you know, like financial restrictions or like just access, being in a rural mm-hmm. area sometimes, even if you have more means than you, like than others, you can't always still get things. Yeah, for sure. So there's that aspect is that I think that there's something very transgressive about being able to take something that is cheap and mass produced and say like, I can make something special out of that. And um, a lot of my art practice, I think, really stems from that. I always wanted to take what I always kind of had to take whatever was at hand, either not being able to afford things or not feeling like I had access to different ways of making. I didn't go to a proper art school for undergrad. I went to a very small local arts college. I had like one Mac computer and that was like our baby. <laughs> and so sure. that was the situation that I um, kind of did undergrad in. And even when I did graduate school, I was in this big university, Concordia University in Montreal. But um, gaining access to some of the special facilities, there were different barriers, as there always are institutionally. And just, like, my comfort level, being somebody who just, like, I was a lot younger than a lot of my classmates, and um, 
really confused about being in a city, really confused about the social politics of like the language there and everything yeah, like that, right. the bilingualism. And so just different things with like social anxiety and just being 22 and not knowing what is going on. Um, I kind of had to, I had to figure a lot of different things out. Um, so that I kind of continued into my art practice and didn't really realize that that's a lot of where that came from. The sort of socio-political bend is that, I mean, a lot of this stems from my grandparents that say their, their desire to make their home not just comfortable and creative and interesting, but also like to reflect a certain kind of stability and a certain kind of alignment with like an, an aesthetic of like economic power. Okay. And so things like fake marble tiles or fake crystal glass, um, fake crystal drawer pulls, the classic like Italian um, chandelier. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, right. Uh -huh. These things, like fake gilded mirrors, putting gold paint on things, like it also aligns to a certain kind of power that isn't necessarily um, going to help people who are like <laughs> from the working class. For so sure. there's a sort of a tension there between like the creativity that it takes to upscale these things, but also if you are somebody, and also our family, like while my grandfather was Sicilian and my grandmother came from a poor background, we're also white. And so we were able, like, you know, there's something in his brain, he achieved the American dream. He had three children that were formally educated and now have homes. That's a huge right, thing. Yeah. So it is success, but however, like he also, like one of the pieces in the show, I spent some time at home that was just up in Vermont at the Vermont Studio Center. It was called, um, my grandfather never taught me how to lay tile or speak Italian, but I taught myself to read. And so that that reference there is that he didn't, he's, he very specifically out of all his family that came over, he was the only one who didn't, I believe, marry another Sicilian woman or Italian woman. Oh, okay. He wanted very specifically to marry a tall blonde American woman, and he wanted his children to be as like American as possible. That's really and so interesting. our side of the family is the only one that doesn't have like Italian language that's used, and so that's a great loss for us. But in his mind, it was to you know buy into that like white Americanness as much as possible to then side with that privilege, and that's something that like that speaks to you know white privilege. It speaks to a a, a political creativity and ingenuity and the way it was described there's a lot of intersections between privilege and class and so that I think is super interesting especially when we're thinking about you know the political climate of today and yeah right I think that you know there's a lot of um, especially if you think about like, the white rural demographic um, and how they're often spoken of there's there's a lot of complexity there, and it's um, not something I always have sympathy for, but it's certainly something that has a lot of complications. So that was one of the things that I think is very relevant, and I really Absolutely. figured out a lot about. And I also like I come from a very conservative family politically and otherwise. So um, spending some time back at my parents' house during the beginning of the pandemic, being back in a rural area, being back you know among like the bathroom that my grandfather redid as a child um but also like you know in that like white american suburban pressure cooker yeah, i call it uh -huh. it was really interesting to re-examine after being having been in montreal for so long after having been in grad school and um you know moving around the art world a little bit realizing what this has done 
and how it's seeped into the way I interact, not just with the world, but with my art practice too. Oh, that's so well said. I, I, I love what you're saying there. You know, it's interesting. I, I was thinking when you were talking about, you know, because you have, there's a lot that you're kind of figuring out, like on mm -hmm. a personal level, like personally and then artistically. And one of the things that I think this is actually, it might sound a little strange, but mm -hmm. that I think is a strength of your work is like, I look at it and I'm like, what's going on here? Right, yeah. And, and like, in the best way because I think that the way that you put together components of the pieces is is unique it's different than what I'm expecting so like when I look at the stuff I'm like and even like we're in your space right now and there's like several pieces here and I'm just like what's going on here and the way that you're hanging them and the way that you're exhibiting them and what is going on with these things is a little bit like it's not easy to stand in front of it and figure out what everything is going on in that like three to four seconds that you normally that unfortunately that's about how long people spend right, in front right. of a piece in a show right mm -hmm. so like in a way I think that that's a really powerful or it's maybe successful given what you're talking about in like all these things that are kind of underlying your artistic practice mm -hmm. is like it's making people stand in front of your work or look at your work a little bit longer but I kind of want to ask you about this because this I, th I think is really interesting especially in the last couple of years in the COVID era where mm -hmm. there's been this kind of pressure I think for people to move to the digital realm to mm -hmm. because you know that was sort of the only way to show work and I actually know a number of artists were who did really really well during the pandemic who were had a really strong digital presence yeah. because it was like people were at home and they were stuck in their house they want to decorate their house and they're looking for artists but I almost feel like digital does a total disservice to your work because like I said like looking at the beadwork or looking at the complexity it's so easier just you know scrolling through Instagram and you might say oh that's cool but it's like you're missing some of that so I wonder how you've your the last couple of years have affected you artistically your practice and sort of how you think about that I mean I know things are opening up a little bit but I also feel like that digital part is here to stay forever yeah, and you're kind of couldn't be further away from that, you know, artistically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I will say I've not found a great way to kind of convey my, I mean, even through photos, like the, I am very interested in making work that really evades, or, you know, things that are silver and shining, kind of mercurial, that's like, that's the quality of the beadwork as mm -hmm. textile mm -hmm. that I find amazing. You're making a glass textile that's incredible and it's supposed to be slippery and strange and too shiny to really photograph so. and i feel like you're supposed to like i look at your work and i like want to touch it well you can touch this piece if you want well <laughs> really, good. really really good oh wow really interesting wow 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 kind of but you know what i mean like and i don't like i don't rarely i rarely never like i'm scrolling through instagram and be like i really want to touch that you know what i mean <laughs> right, but seeing yeah. the work on the wall like you know you get that like you mm. get in person which you never can get in digital mm. and that's a huge part of your work i think yeah i think so too and it's it is hard i the way that i think i would go if this was something that became essential to me which so far i've been skirting through making physical objects and thinking more like being able at least to like digitally in terms of like instagram and sharing my work that way um making small moments in vignettes Mm -hmm. Where even if you can't tell what the piece is, that like I took some photos of like this little moment here where I got a, a piece that's draped and hanging off of one of my lights in my studio. These they, they tie into like the kind of studio domestic living with your work kind of yeah, yeah, realm. Yeah. So that plays with me. But I did used to do I did a, 
explore a little bit of like performance video back in I was going to say I thought maybe and a performance that was a yeah. way to like play with like the relationship between like say bigger textiles like this and the body I did one where um, I had like a lot of transparent beading which you can't take photos of that's like useful at all but um, by hanging it in the center of a room and then kind of moving back and forth with my body in a way that was like not unlike the way that I interact with it when I leave it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were able to get some of that and then there was this kind of conflation of like the person and the beadwork that was it was grad school work, but um it was it was a the yeah, start yeah, yeah. of something in this relationship. So I think the performance and like turning these things into video, um I'm not a very good performer, so it's always for video, it's never live. Um but you know like it's uh, performance isn't a medium super comfortable with but making a video and being able to play with it um, I mean video editing is a lot like beating right you can kind of chop things up and move them around well I mean as a perform I say I'm a performance artist but really I get other people to perform right. in my artworks <laughs> <laughs> right, right. but you're still thinking in the performative yeah. that way and I just I, I'm not sure I'm there but that's kind of something that I would like to explore a little bit more with the beatwork yeah. to give because there is always that comment, like, I just want to touch it, and how do you know what this thing is? And um, I'm working right now, I'm here in Savannah on fellowship with um, the Contemporary Geometric Beadwork Project. Yeah. Um, which is kind of an amazing, an amazing project, and they use beads in a lot of different ways. But one of the things they're thinking about when they're trying to find ways to not just convey the beadwork, but, like, to exhibit it in, like, shows, a lot of the pieces that they make are kinetic, like, they're turning cycles, and oh, really, yeah, yeah, or yeah. they're pieces that are, like, these really complicated geometric spirals that you want to open up and interact with and how do you respect the maker and the work that goes into this piece that like also maybe is really sensitive to light because of different dyes on the beads um maybe i mean touching them is not great because of like the threads and like again the dyes on the beads so it's it's something that you need to protect from light, from skin oils, from everything, but you also need to interact with it to really understand. So performance and video is always one of those things that people are exploring when it comes to beadwork um, to try and uh, figure out how to convey this if you can't physically touch it. And yeah. It is such a physical and bodily thing to do, um, like in a lot of fiber practices. Um, yeah, I mean, that's actually funny. I'm glad you say that because that's one of the things I think is so exciting as an outsider, somebody who doesn't make fiber art, is like, it's not defined yet. That's the scary thing, is like, how do you do this? How do you show it? How do you get it out there? How do you make that's it? That's But that's the exciting yeah. thing, too. Yeah, because, like, for me, as an art lover who, you know, I mean, who's looking at art constantly, like, I'm, I want something to be different. And so, like, I think that there's always ways, of course, for a painter or a sculptor or a more traditional artist to do something different that's interesting mm -hmm. but I think like there isn't a standard yet yeah. for this stuff so there, there, and there's yeah there's no because like, like, even you know I put the show in Vermont was all very painting based or painting panel based of those pieces were a lot of tiles on painting panels with some beadwork kind of assemblaged in but that felt so static even you know the beadwork mm. was all really draped and stuff so it, like Really, like, thinking about this piece here where it's very, um, I don't know how to describe this from, a, like, a listening perspective, but it's really kind of... It's a manufactured metal object that is kind of in a hook shape, upside down, mounted to the wall, from which hang 
parts, pieces of your creation, sort of in a... <laughs> a um, bunch of jewelry chain and then some geometric beadwork that's been netted together. And then on the side, there's a little hook that's also holding this um, this fake crystal uh, door handle and that I think been referring to. It, it's very loose. It's similar in the way you mentioned how you have this bead yes. hang off your lamp, mm -hmm. and it does sort of feel like this thing that's in almost feels like it could be in process mm -hmm. is just like hung up here like uh like you said like a part of a domestic life it's yeah. just like you just hang it up there one of the pieces in the vermont show also was just some bathroom tiles that was in fact like plundered from my parents basement from one day we did that oh bath. that's so like, cool that was one of the best things i get to go through all the family homes and like take things from like the spaces that i grew up and then i also bought things from home depot that were like the most cliche like yeah. repeatable things yeah, that piece was just some bathroom tiles, and then I had made some jewelry during the pandemic, also living at home. One of the only things I could do to make money was, like, make jewelry and sell it on Instagram, and, um... I know I missed your ring sale, actually. Uh, <laughs> well, if you need one, let me know. I'm still on the down low. But then having this, like, tandem practice of making jewelry, making art... And, you know, there's so much kind of separation, compartmentalization, or even stigma that goes with being an artist who has, like, a craft or production practice. Totally. And so, which is interesting about Savannah, because you have SCAD here, I feel like that's a little bit more fluid, which I think is really interesting. But I made myself a necklace kind of on the back of doing a sale. And then just because I was, you know, why do you wear jewelry in a pandemic? Um, so, and it was still kind of early on. That's a really interesting question. Why do you wear jewelry in a pandemic? And why would you make jewelry and why are people buying jewelry? And so I, I went to put it on and I was like, okay, well, I don't know where I'm going to wear it. I'm going to wear this. So I hung it over my painting. And that act felt like, it reminded me of like coming home from a night pre-pandemic, going out, taking off your earrings oh, and putting them on the bathroom yeah. counter. And then they're there for a little bit. Or like, but also like giving the jewelry to the painting and kind of memorializing that thing. Mm. Um, so it's very kind of domestic, but it's also very like fanciful. It's also very creative and artistic. So a lot of the pieces in the Vermont show also had little earrings that I had made and then hung on different parts of the painting. And so I got to kind of dress the painting up that way, but it also, it's not just like this act of ornamentation, which I think is interesting, not just a reference to the body, but also this kind of like the fluidity of like the domestic life where sometimes things go here, sometimes things go there. And um, that's Well, and it's also interesting because it makes you think about the story. Like, mm. it, at least for me, like you can almost look at, you're looking at the end result and you could think back, like you could rewind from that space. I'm like, how did it get to that place? Mm. And it's interesting. And I think that it has that energy of like the moment that led up to that thing being placed on there, which I think is really interesting. And I think too, it leads to you to question what these things are. So for me, there's a little bit of the connection with like the taking off and putting onto the paintings like, oh, there's something from the body or something wearable. And that complicates like the whole narrative of, or the, the dialogue about ornament, but also like the relationship in the body and the painter or the body and the artist mm -hmm. and the artwork. But also the sense of, like like you said, like, where did this come from? What's the story behind it? Thinking then back to, like, the domestic objects or, like, the hardware store stuff. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. like, okay, so, like, this is, like, a I think a guide rail from, like, a bathroom in a, um, like, a restaurant. I picked the, uh, this I garbage picked from Montreal off the street. So that I don't specifically know what it is, but I think yeah, it's yeah. that, like, you know, it, like, curves this way. And you don't know exactly what it is, but, like, But you know it's an industrial feel, yeah. thing, like a manufactured thing for Probably some interior a bathroom. space. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And so, like, to have these things, and then, like, when you were mentioning the, like, the readability of the work, too, 
and wanting to spend time with it, you don't know what's going on. There's also, like, I specifically, like, try to take this, like, I mean, usually I do it through metallics, so, like, if everything's all silver, then I'm asking you to, like, think of these things all together. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. how they flow, and, but they're all very different. Like, some of it's jewelry chain, which means one thing. Some of it is handmade, like, woven, complex beadwork that has, like, its own, like, really intense geometry to it and, like, interaction with the making. And then there's this mass manufactured thing, and there's this whole dialogue in craft, too, about, you know, what is artisanal and what is mass manufactured and where does the line go if, like, people... Like, there's that essay, I can't remember by who it is, but about, like, you know, the, the actual very artisanal cost of making a ceramic toilet. Um, we think of these things as, like, an assembly line, like, factory thing, but then, I mean, even, like, the Kohler, like, Kohler Art Institute exists, right, where, like, the people who make the bathroom tiles and towel bars, they have an institute where people, artists will go and do an arts industry residency for three months and then make stuff through the production. Wow, I did and, not know that. That's yeah, so crazy. Because, yeah, it's a really interesting residency. Um, I'm hoping one day. But, um, <laughs> I mean, actually, I think, like, it would make sense for you. I mean, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would, I would so love to. So Kohler people out there listening. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do it one day. But, um... But this idea of, like, where do these things come from and how are they different is happening. And, like, if you think about, you know, you see somebody cover a painting with, like, tiles, like, why? But what do those tiles mean? And I remember when I, when I did the, a talk to a company, the Vermont show, um, somebody asked about the bodiliness. And, my, you know, your usual thinking of, like, textiles and ceramics and beadwork and the bodies, you know, there's wearables, there's, like, the process of making it and the tactility. But, I was like, but there's also, like, you know, the tiles here. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, during the pandemic, too, we're all wiping down all of our surfaces so much more. Right. There's literal, like, our germs and bodily refuse are on these things. And bathroom tiles are often white so that we can see when they're clean, too. So there's that kind of relationship with things that we think of as, like, especially if we're talking about, like, mass manufacturing versus handmade, the domestic versus the industrial, craft versus whatever is not craft. Um, these are very gendered things and classed things, yeah, too. Yeah. And so when you start to blur the lines, that's what's interesting to me. And that's where I think that that kind of working class promiscuity of materials thing comes in for me because it's all, it, all, it all is whatever it can do. It's all the same. Like if some, if you can make jewelry out of like a, like a towel bar, you do it. If you can make, like yeah. you know, you if you can make a like a Pyrex dish out of a, um, out of a cool jar, you do it. You know, like it's whatever it needs to be. Those are very bad examples. No, but you know what's so funny? No, no, it's interesting because I have this friend. She's my neighbor who lives right behind me, and she's a baker. Mm -hmm. She works for Pie Society, but she's like a, a professional baker. Mm -hmm. Which is amazing, by the way, if your back door neighbor is your friend and she's a baker, then you get yes. treats delivered to your oh house all the time, God. right? And what, one of the things, I was actually talking with my wife about it this morning, is like, she'll bring us stuff, and one of the cool things is she always brings it to us on, like, some weird, like, serving thing yeah. that she's, and literally she finds these, like, at thrift stores and just, like, they're random pieces, not part of the set, they might have chips in them or whatever, and, like... It, feel, it feels so much more special just because it's on this like really weird random thing that's like got some crazy history it just it right. makes it the food tastes better because like you're it's on this thing you know um, so anyway just kind of a kind of a cool you know we're getting deep into the philosophy here and it's just making me 
my heart ache right now because the, I reached out to you, I don't know, maybe two, three months ago or yeah. something like that, and uh, and you were getting ready to do the show in Vermont, and and uh, so you were really busy, and we're like, well, we'll catch up, you know, catch up in April, and then earlier last week, I guess, or earlier this week, I saw that you're moving. Yeah. And so I was very sad because, and I'm, it's, I'm even more sad now because meeting you has met my expectation is that we're having this really cool philosophical discussion and I think you're interesting as a person and an artist and you're going to be leaving. So I want to, I've buried the lead very deep mm -hmm. into this interview here, but I do want to kind of delve into that because um, I, all the only comment I saw, you, you posted up a, a, on Instagram a, a, um, a little sort of comment, sort of a personal feeling I guess that you're having mm -hmm. that you said, Savannah isn't, just isn't working out for me. So I kind of want to talk about that if we can, if we can kind of shift gears a little bit here from away from, you're obviously doing all these really interesting things. Why isn't that working in Savannah, would you say? Right. Well, I, I want to wanna definitely affirm that the people I've met in Savannah have treated me amazingly and I felt incredibly accepted from the moment I landed in a way that like, you know, being like kind of moving to Montreal when I was 22, I never experienced and it's been... Incredible. Um, and plus, you're in Sulphur Studios. Yeah. Well, and when did you move to Savannah? Actually? I moved to Savannah just well, formally moved, moved, got an apartment in October of 2021. Okay. So I've only been officially here for a couple of like less than a year. Yeah. And but I did I did come down here for an extended stay um, to kind of trial the the um, fellowship that I got with Contemporary Geometric Beadwork, and that was in June of 2021. So all told, I'm almost up on a year in Savannah, mm -hmm. okay. um, on and off. So that's when I came. I'm very grateful to have this studio. I actually can thank Sharon Norwood, if you know Oh her. yeah, Who's, Sharon, she's been on my show she's before. Amazing. She's amazing. I knew she's her. Like blowing up right now. Too. She she's is. Gonna... Oh, I, I just had a phone with her. She's like, man, I just like need some time. But she, yeah, her her practice is amazing. I knew her kind of. Um, I didn't know her, know her, but I knew her through Instagram. She was a friend and I think former MFA classmate cohort um, with somebody that I had met, Brittany Watkins, who was working at the time in Tallahassee at Gallery 621, which I showed in 2019, so okay. like, a weird You had thing. some weird connections, But Sharon yeah. also is Canadian, so... Right. When, you know, we had talked a little bit about things online and stuff, and then when I moved down here, I realized that she was living here, I got to meet her, and then we were going to share a studio, but literally she just blew up. Yeah. So she's like, Catherine, I, I can't. She's so. been on, like, residencies one after another she's for, like, the past six months. She's going to Banff, so I know. so excited I for think her. she's setting it up now, isn't yeah, she? I yeah, I think, like, any day yeah. now, if she's not already there, it's amazing. But, um, so she helped me find, like, just very graciously helped me find another space because, like, you know, she couldn't offer me one, but she was not responsible at all. So the kindness is like that. We're just amazing. Uh -huh. Um, and then the people with Contemporary Geometric Beadwork, they have ties to Kate McKinnon just moved down here as well. So she's also new. She's the head of it all. But, um, Sam, um, Norgard from SCAD is like a big is a professor who teaches a lot about beadwork at mm -hmm. SCAD too, and that's really something she's taken on is like showing how much beads can do. Right. I mean. And so she's been really, really lovely, and there's been a bunch of other people I've met who've just been wonderful. So um, I'll say that. 
the reason Savannah just doesn't feel like it's working out truly is because it's impossible to rent a place right now. Not even just like affordably, but at all. Mm-hmm. And you know, think, seeing things for like fifteen hundred dollars or three hundred fifty square feet, yeah. and horrible. Um, right now, I have a. I'm living in a place that's very much a student place. I am thirty years old, living in an apartment that I can't bring somebody over to because it's just my bed. <laughs> um, or yeah, if, yeah. if I do, it has to feel like a dorm room. You know, visit where I reset on my bed and be like, that's. That's frustrating, especially with this fellowship. It's the first time I've had a little bit of like stability financially ever, and I'm what you and and, and this is a problem everywhere. But for Savannah, it's a it's, huge problem here, though. Like, there's not even options, and yeah. so that's been really, really just too hard. And the place I'm living now is just besides the size, which you know I've lived in small places. It's fine. It's like just a a really um, it's just not the best for a lot of different reasons. So. Um, you know, I couldn't, when it started to become a problem, I couldn't just, like, go and find a place. Yeah. There are, like, three things available, and they're all terrible, or way out of budget. And so, that was just something that wasn't, like, it just... What a shame. What a a terrible reason. Yeah, after being being here, and then, the other part, too, is personal, and just, like, I miss, I'm, I'm a northern girl, and I miss my friends and family, and I have a friend who my best friend from undergrad and he just bought a house in Pittsburgh and so I'm gonna move up there to kind of be for the first time ever moved to a city where I have friends already yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah. so at 30 years old I think I'm just ready to have that experience yeah. I think that maybe at this point in people's lives are maybe more ready to go the opposite direction if they're ready to branch out but I moved to Montreal without knowing anybody I moved down here really without knowing anybody and I've been kind of like alienated in different ways as a lot of people have been through the pandemic and I mean the timing couldn't be worse I mean you yeah. know, it's just like well I well left, timing I literally left Montreal the last week of February 2020 oh gosh and the border like closed behind me I was like not really sure I still a little bit of time left on my visa but I had like four months of residencies lined up so it's like perfect I'll use that as a way to like go back to the states for a little bit um, and if things are really bad I can come back in the last like two months of like July and August and try to figure out a situation to renew a visa if I need to but I was pretty committed to coming back just for you know reasons of moving on after being in a city for seven years so I didn't have a solid plan but I was like four months of residencies I'll be able to find something right and then I was like maybe I'll just travel around hop around a little bit see what's going on I had some savings built up because it's very cheap to live in Montreal, and so I was like, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do, take the leap and jump and figure it out. I can always come back and visit. And then the border closed directly behind me, yeah. and I was in my first residency in Central Missouri, um, as the pandemic caved in, and just sitting by myself in a place that I had no idea. Oh my god! I will say the residency I was on was with um, what is now Sager Reeves Gallery in Columbia, Missouri, and they were wonderful to me so I just want to like in that situation yeah but I mean please you have a space stay as long as you need like I had that but um yeah it was I had left my job left my home (laughs) and was in the middle of nowhere my plans had only been to like figure it out (laughs) yeah (laughs) so it was rough yeah. Yeah, that's tough. I, I wonder. I mean, what has been the response here to your work in Savannah? I mean, you've only been here for a few months, but yeah. I wonder what people think. Well, I've had a lot of people, a lot of support from like the beating people that I've met mm-hmm. through um, geometric or contemporary geometric beadwork and Sam regard. Um, so, and um, I haven't really gotten it out too too much. Everybody who I've met has been lovely and supportive. But, um, yeah, I haven't had a chance to, like, show or really have too many studio visits or anything like that because I've 
not only has it been like kind of pandemic up and down, it's also been like I've been back and forth a little bit, back up north. And um, so I think in general, I'll say positive, but I haven't been able to like get it out very much to really so, and even the work that was in Vermont stayed up there because it's all tiles and super heavy. And since I'm moving to Pittsburgh, I just left it there. So that is, hasn't even like gotten to come to I love that work, though, too, by the way. And people can catch it on your Instagram page. You know, I want to kind of start to wrap this up, but I did want to mention, you know, that we do have one local artist who has very strong Pittsburgh ties, and that's Yoli oh. Mulali. I don't know if you know her. No. But she is a performance artist. She does Saw the Wheel, and she took a... She bought a truck turned into a mobile stage and she does stage performances like around town very artistic very crazy like freeform lots of um she collaborates with lots of different people but she grew up and established herself in pittsburgh she and she moved just well actually i think she made a stop in new orleans and then savannah but um but she has those pittsburgh connections and she has nothing but good things to say about her experience in pittsburgh so um, it's gonna. It's a real shame that we're gonna be lo- losing um, somebody who was as talented as you uh, here in our artistic community. But I hope that things go well for you in Pittsburgh. Now, people won't be able to see your work in person, and we did talk a little bit about digital. But for people who maybe want to follow you, want to learn more about you and your work, what's the best way for people to do that? How can people do that as you move on to Pittsburgh? Yeah, I'm very active on Instagram. My handle is just at Catherine Schreiber, my full name. Um, you can see, I post a lot of finished works, but also a lot of, like, weird behind-the-scenes studio stuff and the little moments that I'm talking about. Um, and also, when I have jewelry sales, if anybody's interested. <laughs> and then also, um, It's lovely jewelry, too. I know that's not your main focus, but... Well, it's becoming more and more part of my art practice. If you see those rings there that are, like, in this oh, piece yeah, yeah, here, yeah, yeah, interlocked yeah. versions of the ones that I make for sales. So, it's all, I think it's... It's that thing where like I just cannibalize whatever making practice and it becomes part of the work. Um, but yes, there's the Instagram and there's also my website, with this, which is again just my name, Catherine Schreiber. I love your website too. Okay. And I want to mention to people out there listening that Catherine is spelled K-A-T-H-R-Y-N just yes. because it's a little bit of an alternate spelling. So if you're looking for that, make sure you do that. But anyway, Catherine Schreiber, thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It was lovely talking. I really appreciate it as well. That's all the time we have for this week's episode of Art on the Air with your host, Rob Hessler. Listen every Wednesday for our live show, broadcasting from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on 107.5 FM, Savannah Soundings, and worldwide at WRUU.org. And you can catch past episodes on the WRUU station archives on our website, as well as on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. We'll talk to you next week, where we'll have another batch of art on the air.